and welcome to the Velvet Voice Podcast, a storytelling podcast where I share the stories I have cultivated throughout my lifetime and of authors I have developed an appreciation for. I'm your host, Tyson, and today I want to talk about memory and how memory can provide the soul of a good story. Whether the memory in question is delightful or by retrospect, it becomes something you'd rather not dwell on. Memory can fuel us to accomplish great things, terrible sometimes, but great, as the wandmaker Ollivander might say. You may notice that last reference was to the character created by J.K. Rowling, who has garnered some negative attention for her transphobic views. Despite her shortcomings, however, I think the memory of her work has given souls to many new stories from the authors and people who have been spellbound by the boy who lived. And so, while Rawlings' stories may be delightful and her opinions concerning trans people may prove ignorant, I believe it would benefit us all to remember that the soul has a complex constitution. And so, the memories that provide the soul of a story can be complex as well. The complexity of our memory may reach even greater depths when we consider that sometimes our memory can prove unreliable, which adds another layer of intrigue to our stories, much like the unreliable narrators in many famous works of literature. Researchers have long theorized that memory may be manipulated. Perhaps trauma can drive us to forget events altogether or even convince us that something pleasant happened during our most vulnerable moments. And in this way, our stories, the ones we have written within ourselves, can turn out to be grand mysteries where all of the pieces seldom fit. My next story takes its soul from a brilliant memory that has been burned into my heart forever. The End of Our World A story by Tyson Shepard Fire Our world ended in fire. My mother, sister, and I stood shivering in the unforgiving cold as everything we knew was swallowed by a sinister flame. Even now, it is difficult for me to think of how quickly it all happened, an eviction that spanned less than three minutes. Minute one. My mother screams after noticing the fire. Contrary to my horror movie expertise, I am summoned into the kitchen. Minute two. The fire snakes its way up from the stove to touch the ceiling. My heart is quivering. My mother turns to me in panic. Grab your sister, she says. Minute three. I run back through the hallway to the back of the house. I slide through the door, then snatch my sister out of her bed my arms clumsily grabbing any part of her I can hold on to in the darkness. She is wide awake now as I stumble down the hall back through the kitchen, 
our only way out. The fire spreads its wide belly across the ceiling. We can hear the crackling of our home as my mother intercepts us and pushes us out of the door. Oh my God, oh my God, she cries as I cradle my now wailing sister in my arms. Time. I look over to the car parked closely beside the dining room window. The keys, I say, handing my sister to my mother. I have to get the keys. No, my mother screams, but I ignore her, barreling towards the swaying, burning door. Two steps forward, then I feel a hard yank in the back of my shirt. Slam. A part of the roof collapses and a large beam falls from the ceiling, blockading the front door. I stumble backward while hot ashes and smoke chase me to the ground. My mother screams again, but my gaze is trapped inside of the house. The front door swings open and slams shut, almost as if by magic, and continues to sway in automation as we allow our hearts to believe what our eyes have now seen. Between the pauses, as the door to the makeshift furnace swings open and slams shut, I can see it. There is something in the flame, a figure burning inside of the house. My mother drags me further back from the doorway, the back of my feet scraping against the harsh gravel. I feel the discomfort widening around my throat, but I cannot look away from wherever it is, standing there, in the fire, but very much alive. The fiery thing takes a majestic bow right before the door slams shut again, this time for good. What were you thinking, my mother says, as I push my palms against the cold gray ground. I, I thought, I say, but nothing else comes out as I am hoisted to my feet. My sister is still crying. My mom is crying too. But in the chaos of leaving the house, seeing that thing and trying but failing to be a hero, only now do I feel my own tears. They taste much more bitter than the cores of black plums I allowed myself to suck on. All I can think as our now burning house blows its last hot breath onto our faces is one thing. It is all gone. No one told me how much it would hurt to walk barefoot down a winding gravel road. How could they know? It is not a pain that emerges in casual conversation, but rather a trial I will later understand more conventionally through biblical verses. The stones are sharper than I could expect, the edges of rock largely unweathered by the years. As the weight of my body pushes the prickly stones into the soles of my feet, I wonder how the stones are able to do so much damage without drawing blood. You can't squeeze blood from a turnip, my mother used to say, and I cannot help but feel like a turnip now. Dirty, uprooted, my bare feet pale in the winter cold. If only I had gone to bed with a jacket that night the way my sister did or maybe with socks, like my mother. It is a little less than a mile walk to the neighbor's house, but somehow, time stops moving steadily on the road. Each agonizing step I take feels like a serrated blade has brushed against the heel of my foot, 
but this turnip still does not give blood. My family's desperate cries have now been tamed into quaint tears as my mother totes my sister on the rim of her hip. I do not have the sense to thank God for the prosperity which cloaks us on our journey. It is cold, yes, but cold means freedom from the worry of venomous vipers winding across the road. There are no street lights on the trek from our former home to the neighbor's trailer, but the moon has never shone brighter this season, so we find our way. But the thing I should give the most praise for is the silence. Silence likely means that the coyotes and wild dogs are wandering some other stretch of the country this time of night. It must be many hours before they would normally find themselves tearing through the plastic bags of trash I had put out earlier in the evening, but had forgotten to douse with bleach. I can hear my mother's breathing run ragged as my sister's somber wails evolve into awkward hiccups. My heart shakes on with anxious anticipation as I feel my mother pulling me forward so I do not fall behind. We walk on teardrops until we see the faint glow of our neighbor's porch light. I can't breathe, my mother says. I need you to carry your sister for a while. She stops, allows my sister to grab a hold of me, then crouches down to catch her breath. I worry for a moment because her inhaler, like everything else, was left behind in the flood of fire and smoke. Outside of my sister's awkward hiccups, I take notice of her small, trembling body, and despite her gold puff jacket, I can't feel any warmth from her. I fight the urge of tears threatening to overcome me as I consider that maybe the fire has stolen that, too. My mother collects herself as best she can, then signals for us to keep going. As I look to the trees on either side of the forest, my mind is invaded by the faint nightmare of that thing standing in the flames. What if it comes for us again? Before the embers of the nightmare have time to settle into my mind, we have found our way to the neighbor's porch. The wood is hard, but not as unyielding as the gravel road. My mother wraps her small fist against the old country screen door, summoning the howls of the neighbor's dogs. Then, there are more lights as the windows glow and the door cracks open. We must begin the task of lamentation all over again. That was the end of our world, a story derived from one of the most vulnerable experiences in my life. It's hard to explain what it's like to lose everything, or rather, when you feel like you've lost everything. But the memory of such a moment is one that you may be forced to carry with you for the rest of your life. I know I have been forced. But oddly enough, I haven't let the trauma define me. I've chosen to live in spite of it. Use that memory to give life to something where before I could only think of destruction. And so, I believe it bears restating that the embers of a memory, no matter how horrific, always carry with them the possibility of giving birth to a grand story, something new. As this episode comes to a close, 
I ask you to consider what memories have etched themselves in the back of your mind. For good or for ill, how might you begin to transform them and give them new life?